Hello and welcome to episode 72 of Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. And in this episode, we'll be starting off with a suggestion from Teddy. Thank you, Teddy, which is reading at home versus reading elsewhere. And in the second half, we'll be looking at two books that were inspired by Virginia Woolf. One is The Hours by Michael Cunningham, a novel, and one is Mrs. Woolf and the Servants by Alison Light, nonfiction. Um, yes, fun. Uh, before we get to all of that, happy Easter, everyone. Hope you enjoyed happy your, Easter. yeah, hope you enjoyed bank holiday if you got one. Um, and Rachel, did you enjoy your bank holiday? And what are you reading? I did, yeah. I mean, it's very unusual in the UK to have a bank holiday where the sun is shining. Um, it's and not just shining, but it? actually hot. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I had a lovely time. I've, um, I went to the garden centre. Lovely. Um, uh, in Cam in Camden Town under the railway arches. So not really a very garden centery <laughs> place. Um, but that's my closest one. And I bought some stuff from my balcony, which is now looking very um jaunty, I would say. Yeah. A little bit of bunting, some um geraniums. What more do you need? Lovely. Um so I'm just waiting on a chair now, which is arriving on Saturday, which by which time obviously the sun is going to have gone away, but never mind. Um <laughs> And it was my brother-in-law's birthday, so I had a lovely barbecue at my sister's in Kent in the countryside. And when um, my young, my middle nephew has become very interested in metal detecting, oh, um, right. <laughs> and their kindly next-door neighbour gave him a metal detector. So we were out in the woods trying to find treasure, which sadly we didn't find any. Um, but seeing as the metal detector couldn't detect that my earrings were metal, I wasn't entirely <laughs> sure how good it was but I, I didn't tell freddie that um but yeah so very nice time it's been a bit of um, a bumpy ride back to earth being at work today i have to say yeah. getting up this morning was a challenge seeing as i've had two weeks off so oh, same yeah um, that was a very yeah. long description of my weekend sorry. i liked it i I, <laughs> <laughs> I went down to bristol which was nice oh, i've never been um if you not gosh um I don't actually like Bristol particularly, but almost everyone else does. So don't don't let that put you off. <laughs> <But> <laughs> my brother lives there, and my best friend lives there, and various other friends live there. So I, I do spend more time there than anywhere else other than home. Yeah. Um, and yeah, because Dad has now retired as a vicar, we can all go and spend Easter somewhere that is not his church. Well, we went to my brother's just, church instead. Oh, lovely! Yeah, how nice for your dad to be able to just relax. Yes, although. Bless him. Uh, he's a man who likes people to organise things slickly. So he's just sitting there thinking this could be much more, or well, not thinking, <laughs> saying this could be more efficient. Why is it not started yet? Uh, bless him. Uh, I also had my first cup of tea since before Lent began. Uh, it was great. Although, no, I did accidentally make you one, didn't I? Well, I chose never to quite find out whether you did or not. <laughs> <laughs> and I will take that ignorance to the grave with me. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I did drink five cups of tea on Easter Day and did not sleep very well the following night. I think my body is unused to caffeine. I mean, it's interesting, actually, isn't it? Because I always think people say often, oh, you know, tea's actually got more caffeine in it, uh, whatever, than, than mm. coffee. And um, But it's interesting to think, actually, if you do wean yourself off altogether, whether you feel the effects. Because I always say, oh, no, tea doesn't affect me at all. But... I wonder whether it would if I stopped. But I don't, I mean, yeah. I, to be honest, you drink quite a lot on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm. I mean, how how many cups would you say on average you drank a day? 
Um, I did once have to calculate this for my GP and I <laughs> came up with eight, which she just described as unhealthy. So, <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's British, so, you know. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that is quite a lot. I would probably have on a weekday one. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, because I don't drink tea at work. Of course, because yeah. we've got this awful, like, um, urn to do the hot water in for in the staff room and you can't clean it because somebody who set it up decided to basically bolt the um the the plug to the wall so you can't remove it so the amount of lime scale that is in that urn is disgusting and i can't <laughs> face making any hot drink from it so i just don't have any at work plus there's also a long-standing mug gate situation oh my goodness whereby i have a jane Eyre mug one of the penguin mugs at work lovely and um from time to time it goes missing um so and it's always it. found in places like the science lab or um <laughs> the history classroom and everyone knows it's my mug Whenever I'm sure you've told like, them. Well, I have. And everyone's always like, oh, well, how, was, how was I supposed to know whose mug it would be? I was like, whose mug would it be? It's got Jane Eyre on it. It's obviously mine. It's the English teacher. Exactly. I mean, there's only four of us, and I'm the one who bangs on about the Victorians all the time. So, come on. Um, so, you know, also my mug often ending up in strange places. I mean, and I obviously can't use someone else's mug. So... It's yeah, it's a tricky situation to be honest with you. At the weekend, though, I mean, I probably do average about eight cups a day. Okay. <laughs> At yeah. work, we have communal mugs, but I'm not. I'm not part of that. I don't want any of that. So I have my yeah. own <laughs> mug, which has cats on it. So when I worked in an office, it was much easier because you know you just kept your mug on your on desk. Your desk, yeah. But I don't have a desk, so. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't normally talk so much about the tea half of tea or books. So there you no, go. No, um, but we'll turn to books now <laughs> with, uh, yeah, what, what are you reading? Well, I'm actually reading a book for the staff book club at the moment. So this is the first time, actually, the book wasn't chosen by me, oh. um, which I might say is, is just um, is nothing to do with me being bossy. We all mm. um, but we actually meet in a Waterstones cafe. Um, and what we do is after we finish chatting, we all go out into the shop and we all find a book that we like. And then we come back and then we all put the books in front of each other and, and have a look at them. And then we make a decision, um, which is quite fun. Yeah, is, um, that's a nice idea. Yeah, it is quite nice. And also there are lots of everyone in the group has really diverse reading tastes. And we also have things that so like half of the group are French and they are a few people who don't feel massively confident reading quite complicated stuff in English. So we have to kind of try and strike a balance between things that are not quite so mm. literary. Um, so this time we chose The Wayward Bus by Jerome Steinbeck, which is a Steinbeck I'd never heard of. No, I haven't. No. Um, yeah, Penguin seem to have recently reissued a lot of his lesser known novels. Um, and this one is about, um, it's set in California, obviously, and it's about a, a bus station that is in, you know, the middle of nowhere in the desert. Hmm. And, uh, a group of people, so basically at the beginning of the novel, the bus has, has broken down. So this guy, uh, Juan has this, um, bus station and the Greyhound bus stops there. But, um, as any of us who have had to travel on the Greyhound <laughs> bus know, uh, the, the routes are rather odd and, um, don't always go where you want them to go. So he does the, uh, the Greyhound bus like stops there and he does the extra run to LA, but the bus doesn't go on to LA, his bus does. So Juan owns this bus and his bus is broken down. So there's all these people that are stuck at, at his bus station and they all want to go on to LA. And it's basically 
the the story of all these random people who are thrown together on this bus journey to LA and I'm about mm. halfway through and it's very interesting so I mean actually confession I've only read of mice and men people always think that I must know a lot about <laughs> John Steinbeck because it's really commonly taught but I've only read the one I've had to teach I've had loads of his books on my shelf for years but never read any more so I wasn't really sure what to expect because this is um it's certainly not East of Eden links but it's um it's kind of, it's a good novel. It's not a novella. Yeah. Um, I'm about halfway through and yeah, I'm really enjoying it. I love his, um, the sparsity of his prose and I also love how he describes people. He's so good at, at just picking up on the smallest of details that can tell you everything about a person. So okay. it's great. It's, it's good because I've, I've been through a phase of reading a lot of mid-century mm. stuff and so uh, English stuff. So it's been nice to be catapulted into a different environment. Yeah, I've only read Of Mice and Men and The Pearl, which is extremely short. Yes. Um, but I do have several others. In fact, I got one in a Secret Santa, uh, The Winter of Our Discontent last ah. Christmas. So maybe maybe we should dive in with, with Steinbeck at some point, educate maybe ourselves. Yeah. Um, well, fun. Okay. Uh, I um reading well so as we record and possibly as this goes live depending on whether or not i edit it in time uh it is the 1965 club which is you know the six monthly thing where karen of cagsy's bookish ramblings and i encourage people across across the book internet to all read books published in the same year and this time is 1965's turn and i'm reading or just started a book that i know that you like which is stoner by john williams oh so I'm only a chapter in, but I would, I think, after reading that chapter, if I did not know that you already liked it, I would have texted you, like, Rachel, you should read this. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, I mean, I'm really enjoying it, but it does seem very, very much your sort of book. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he, I am, again, yeah, again, only a chapter in, but um, looking forward to reading more. Oh, okay. So um, I'm just wondering, both for my sake and perhaps for people listening, um, are there any sort of major 1965 books that you think people should, if they want to participate, read? Mm, or are likely question. to have on their shelves, perhaps? Um, short answer is not really. It doesn't seem to be <laughs> that that much of a sort of... There's not, I couldn't find many big hitters. Right. Let's look it up. The other books I'm reading this week, uh, I re- well, I read The Mandelbaum Gate by... Um, Muriel Spark, yeah. Muriel Spark, yes, which I did really enjoy, but I, I think even people who like Muriel Spark might well not have that one on their shelves. <laughs> um, it's not one of her most popular. And I'm going to read The Carlisles at Home by Thea Holm. Oh, oh uh, okay. So, yeah. Which seems slightly like cheating because it's surely not going to be that much about 1965. <laughs> but, um but no, more. but interesting at the same time that somebody was interested in the Carlisle in 1965. Mm, that's true. Um, there's always an Agatha Christie. So at Bertram's Hotel is the Agatha right. Christie. That, I think that's Miss Marple. Was she it. still writing in the 60s? Yeah, I think she, she died in 1977, I think. Goodness, I didn't yeah. realise that. Um, and I, mean, I read The Millstone by Mar- Margaret Drabble, which is the same uh-huh. year. That's very good. Um, but yeah, in general, it's not, I mean, previous years we've had like Rebecca was, it was published in one of the years we did and we thought if nothing else, you can read Rebecca. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, you might need to think a little outside the box or just go for Agatha if, if, if in doubt. Yeah. 
Read Agatha. I might have a look on my shelves and see what I can find. Do have a little look through, yeah. Yeah. Um, so far, so we're only so recording on a Tuesday, and we've had only a couple of days so far, but it's been a nice range of things. And so far, no repeats of books being ah. read by people. I'm sure that won't be true by the end. Oh, just seen the Autobiography of Malcolm X was published in 1965, so that would be interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah, it's not a year that... I mean, the, yeah, the books I picked off my shelves weren't ones that I was super desperate to read. Stoner, I was more interested in reading after I heard how much you liked it. But um, I will see see how the year goes. Well, so is it just is it just a week you're doing it for? Or is it just month? a week, just a week okay. until um, Sunday. So I yes, it's sorry if that has already passed by the time I get this live. Hopefully, it's still going. But otherwise, well, but interesting for people to be able to go back and have a look anyway. Isn't that's it? a very good point. Yes, and we'll, links to all the reviews will be at stuckinabook.com. Lovely. Yeah. So on to our first topic, suggested by Teddy. And I'm afraid, Teddy, I don't know if you're a man or a woman. So <laughs> <laughs> judging by the audience of this podcast, I should probably assume woman, but I don't know. If that's well, you never know. You never know. Some men listen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, suggested <laughs> reading books at home versus reading elsewhere. Um oh. And I mean, hopefully that's not going to be a two-minute conversation. I do have some some backup from our Patreon patrons. I'll come to them later. But Rachel, where do you tend to do most of your reading? Um, well, actually, um, I do a lot of reading on transportation. Hmm. Um, I'm a big train reader. I do travel on the train quite a lot. Not as much as I used to because I used to to get the, the tube to work, but I get um, I walk now. But um, and as I've discussed before, I can't be doing with audiobooks, so that doesn't work for me on my commute. Um, but I often take long train journeys um, to visit family or friends, and I love having those two or three hour mm, stretches mm. where you've got nothing else to do but, but read. And um, I really enjoy reading on trains, actually. Um, I think it's a really interesting experience to read something while you're moving and you've got that sense of getting really lost in another world because often for me, like I, I find it quite stressful travelling because I, I hate kind of crowds and mm. people talking and things like that. And for me, reading means that I'm able to shut all of that out and I can just completely disappear. Whereas when I'm reading at home, I've always got that nagging sense of I ought to, you know, do the hoovering or I should <laughs> put a wash on. And, you know, I'm, I'm always a bit distracted by things I've got to do. Whereas on the train, there's nothing, there's nowhere nothing else I can else. be. Yeah. Guiltless reading. So, exactly. So I can just plunge myself in. Um, I'd like to say that I chose specific books for railway journeys. I'm not sure I do. I tend to choose longer books, um, books often as well that I know I would normally not prioritise. Um, because it kind of forces me to read. So, for example, when I went up to, um, where was I going when I read The Crimson Petal in the White? I was on a train somewhere, can't <laughs> remember where. Um, and I read that on the, on the train journey. And that was really good because I'd been struggling to read it for stretches of time at home. Um, I couldn't really get past about 20 minutes, whereas on the train I was able... Was I on a train or a plane? I can't remember. I was on some form of a plane. <laughs> some um, merry-go-round going around. I mean, who knows? And it was, um, yeah, it was really good. To have, oh, I, I know, I was on the train um, to Edinburgh. Hmm. So that's a good five-hour journey for people who don't know. So that was great because I completely immersed myself in it and I 
I nearly finished the book, which was great. Same when I got um, a train to Scotland another time and I read Vanity Fair, which, again, was one that I'd really struggled to do more than 20-minute, 25-minute stretches at home. Um, whereas on the train, again, I could just get lost in it. So for me, those more challenging reads, the more either because they're challenging because they're long or they're challenging because they're more kind of require more intellectual energy are great for reading on the train. Yeah, it does remind me. Uh, so years and years ago, my brother and I did a sort of book swap or book recommendation swap. Um where I had to read The Eye of the World by Robert Jordan, which is the first book in the Wheel of Time series, a very long fantasy series. And he had to read two books by Virginia Woolf. <laughs> um, and I, I mean, neither of us are particularly excited about these, <laughs> the prospect of reading these books. So when I say recommendations, it was more like, you probably won't like this, but, but here you go. Um, and I took it on a, on the Eurostar to Paris because I thought I, it was the only book I took for a long weekend in Paris visiting my friend who lived there at the time. I thought, I've got no choice but to read this book now. <laughs> <laughs> and it was not good for me. I did not like it. Um, it's very slow, very dull. But uh, yes, if I had not taken it there or if I brought other books with me, I would never have read it. Whereas I didn't quite finish it. I read 500 plus pages of it, but this, there are 750 pages or so. So Gosh. I did eventually plow my way through to the end but yeah like you i do i do love a, a train journey for for that very reason um but uh do i i don't know where i do most of my reading i always feel like i'm never reading and yet i do read a lot of books so i must be reading at some well, point you have that very enviable ability to read while you walk well so i i did do that but my physiotherapist made me promise to stop <laughs> <laughs> Apparently it was doing terrible things to my posture. <laughs> so I've not done it for a few months, which is a shame because I did used to walk to and from work reading a book and it's and it adds an extra hour's reading time to the day. It was great. Well there's there's actually a couple of people that I see on my community who do that as a commute. I mean I'm walking to work is not far. Um but there's a a couple of people that read uh, come out of the chief station at Russell Square, which I will pass on my way to work. Mm -hmm. Um even reading and I mean, it's very busy around there. The pavement is a chocker. And, you know, it's, it's hard enough for me to make sure I don't die <laughs> by being run over or something. Um, but these, there's a couple of ladies who, who do it every morning and they're like completely engrossed in what they're reading and walking yeah. along. And, and I don't know how they manage. Well, there was, there was one guy who used to do it, who I walked past on the way to work when I lived in East Oxford. And when I would doing, we would all just pass each other more or less the same place every, every day, both reading our books. <laughs> I will say that the the only time I've come close to getting walked into by people is other people looking at their phones whilst they yes. walk. Because when I started walking and reading back in, you know, 2004 or something when I went to university, smartphones didn't exist. People had mobile phones, but not, nothing they needed to be too engrossed with all the time. And there were no That's obstacles to me. Yeah, whereas now people doing their Snapchatting, probably. Do people still have Snapchat? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm not up with the uh, with all the stuff. I mean, I should be. The kids tell me stuff, but I'm just like, whatever. Yeah, I don't know what you should They shouldn't have asked the opinion of someone who spent the bank holiday at a garden centre, should they? No, you <laughs> shouldn't. I mean, I've, I've gone past the, the Rubicon now, haven't I? So, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I do. I think I must do most of my reading at home because I don't travel. I mean, I drive to work, um, so... I don't do. What reading. about in the in the park or anything like that? Um, I do spend quite a lot of my lunch times reading. I did decide when I started 
at the company I work at about two and a bit years ago, having in my previous job, I spent all my lunch times with colleagues and, and friends. And I thought when I got to my new job, I'd actually rather just read. So I'm going to start now the precedent of just reading at lunchtime. Because at the end of two years, I'd rather have read the extra few books and get to know these people better. So. Simon, that's terrible. Is it terrible? Maybe. Probably. I love lunchtime for having a good old natter with my colleagues. So. Yeah, I mean, um, I should I should do that. Sorry, Yasmina et al. But I talk to them during the day. I guess you'd only see, you'd only see your colleagues at lunchtime. Yeah, or during a free period. But um, yeah, no, it's nice to to have that time as well to, to just chill out. Or often I'll go for, go for a walk. Um, but yeah, it doesn't really occur to me. I don't actually take a book with me to work. Which um, shocks me. I mean, how do you leave the house without one? Well, because I'm an English teacher. When I get to work, I'm surrounded by books in my classroom, <laughs> aren't I? So there's always something for me to read. But you only read one book at a time. I know, I do. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, mean, I don't really read much during the week. I normally read before I go to bed. So that's, and that's a place that I actually really enjoy reading is in bed. Um, so I normally kind of give myself about half an hour um, before I go to sleep when I read okay. just to wind down. And my like big treat on the weekend um, is on a Saturday morning, I get up and there's nothing sweeter than the sound of your flatmate turning the kettle on and knowing <laughs> that someone else is making you a cup of tea. But often it's me getting up and doing the tea. And then I go back to bed for an hour and read, which I absolutely love doing. True. I think the only time I read in bed is at, on a Saturday morning. I, I don't really do it at night because I tend to just be watching TV in the last thing at night, um, which you probably shouldn't do. But uh, yeah, so Saturday mornings, if I can just, particularly if I've got nothing at all on, I can just stay in bed reading till lunchtime. That's the dream. <laughs> Sorry, people listening, you have young children. <laughs> yes, apologies, but I mean, it is great. But some days I can't because I have to go to church, but um, it's, I don't have exactly. to. I, I go to church because I like to. Um, yeah. <laughs> and um, so that's that's time. That's not time I have. So Saturday mornings is always, um, yeah, a little treat time if I'm not rushing off to do something. Um, but my church service quite... is... Te- oh, sorry. They say again. I was going to say my church service is 10.30, so on Sundays now I can sometimes, if I get up at 8, I've got a good hour reading before I... Yeah, no, that's true. Mine doesn't start till 11, but I'm normally doing something, um, so I have to get there a bit earlier. But, um, yeah, no, it's, it's, I think, having, I think reading at home, I've actually, over the last week uh, when I've been pottering about at home during the Easter holidays, I deliberately didn't pack my holiday out because I knew I would want some downtime, and... With the unexpectedly lovely weather, it's just been really nice sitting on my balcony and and just reading. And I have read a lot, actually, much more than I would normally do, mm. um, which I've I've really enjoyed because I've read a lot of books back to back, and they've all been quite different. Um, and being able to read a book in a day is just lovely to mm. to just kind of steam through and then be able to move on to another story. And um, yeah, it's been really good. I've really enjoyed that sense of reading at home, but that's only because I haven't had anything else to do on a normal, like when I get in from work, my first instinct isn't, oh, I'm going to go get a book and have a read. I'll be like, oh, okay, I need to, you know, cook my dinner. Then I need to, you know, check my emails and, you know, do some piano practice or something. Or you <laughs> know, if I'm, if I'm not doing something else or, or I'm out, so I don't really have time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think most evenings I probably... Well, I try and try and read a little bit every day, but it might only be a couple of pages. Uh, I do also... nothing. Well, exactly. Of, of small acorns or whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> I also love just going to a cafe and reading. That's always fun. Oh, do you do that? See, I can't do that. 
Oh, really? So, I mean, it has to be the right sort of book. If it's like, if it's a very, you know, wordy book or something, then no. But um, if it's if it's something that I think won't require me to give com- complete attention, or if, if I think someone talking in the background will distract me too much, then no. But otherwise, so I, yeah, I can't but... cope with that at all. I find it too distracting, all the noises and. I really. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I'm quite I'm relatively good at drowning people out as long as they're not too strong. Or I try to sit near people who are speaking another language because I know that won't distract me. Yeah, I find um, that worse actually because I can't, I can't um, zone out foreign languages. I can zone out English. But I can't really? zone out foreign languages. Yeah, I don't know why. I think it's because I'm trying to work out what they're saying. Whereas <laughs> English, I don't, don't need to, even though I have no idea what they're saying. <laughs> Um, unless they're speaking French, then I can normally figure it out. But yeah, if yeah. it's another language, then no. And I don't know why. It just it kind of heightens my senses in a way that hearing people speak English doesn't. Because I think with English, because I can zone in and out as I please. And whereas a foreign language, I couldn't. Um, so I don't know. I'm just kind of heightened to it the whole time. So I never really thought of reading in a cafe. I can read in the park, kind of. But I tried yeah. to do that last week. And... I went to the park and I you know, found myself a bench and got myself all settled. And then the minute I was sort of relaxed and, and getting into my book, a load of kids turned up and started playing football and they were screaming oh, and shouting. No. And then I was I, I don't mind screaming and shouting because that's kind of the background noise to my life at, at work. So I think <laughs> that's not a problem. But it was I was consciously anxious that I was going to get the ball kicked at oh, me gosh, yeah. by mistake because they were quite clever. I mean, they weren't horrible children or anything. They wouldn't have done no. it on purpose, but... I just thought I can just imagine that ball come sailing over and hitting me on the face yeah. or something. So I couldn't relax. So then I was just like, oh, I might as well just go home. So I did. <laughs> a sad tale. Oh, well, let's turn, tale. <laughs> let's turn to Patreon briefly. So I, I put on Patreon, um, patreon.com forward slash TL books. Do you have a favorite place to read or what's the most unusual place you've read a book? Okay. <laughs> I'll just go through some responses so, me talking for a while, sorry but chime in if you think they're interesting okay. so the first response was Emma who says that she there's a patch of carpet in my front room that's always sunny I like to sit there with my book like a cat I think that's oh, great that's nice yeah it's a lovely image I've not tried reading on the floor particularly but maybe I should try that I used to when I was a child actually I used to love doing that lying on my tummy and reading oh yeah um, I do that but my back hurts too much do yeah <laughs> no I can't do it anymore I'm getting old <laughs> Oh dear. So, yeah, like that. I was like, I can't get up. I guess I live here now. <laughs> uh, Mark, which is, this is also lovely. Nearly every morning for over two decades, I've started my day at Starbucks, where I read for almost an hour before going to the office. Isn't that nice? Oh, lovely. How civilized. I wonder uh, where this Starbucks is. I wonder if it's a quiet Starbucks. That's true. Mark, tell us, tell us more. Yeah, fill us in. Uh, I know he's American, so it's, it won't be near you, but um, okay. <laughs> somewhere in America. Um. Gracie's written a long message, let's see. Um, oh, well, I'll, I'll summarise by saying that by changing from her very comfortable sofa that was deep enough to enable a large cat plus a small dog during nap time, theirs and or mine, nice, uh, since she got rid of that, she's read 25 fewer books. Oh. There you go. So it's the right place to read. It's very important. So she needs to get a, a good sofa bag, clearly. Yes. Uh, Liana has, says she's in a very small apartment but has managed to create a reading nook in an awkward corner that houses her armchair, some for books and a little table for coffee, tea, wine nice, and she loves reading there um, or goes out to her courtyard with her her black cat if it's sunny Oh, that paints quite a picture, I'd love to go eat, to eat of that reading nook or the courtyard with the cat that sounds lovely it's yeah. lovely to carve out a space that's just sacred for reading 
It is. And I would sit in your yellow wing back chair and read a lot. Oh, yeah. You know, you ought to get that yellow chair. I mean, there's nowhere to put it. I did spot that someone on Gogglebox have the same one, though. So there you go. Oh, really? Everyone's yeah. got it now because it's like here. Yeah. <laughs> it looks so, so much more I know, and it, just, it does doesn't it everyone yeah. whenever i say well you know it's only a kit everyone's always shocked yeah i mean it's cheap as chips i could keep it in the bath you um, could replace see. it you could replace an existing piece of I furniture could. that's true i feel like i need to come around and just sort things out a bit i mean be kind <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm very happy with it at the moment okay. <laughs> um i will say she mentions cats that um What's great about sitting down and reading a book when a cat immediately jumps in your lap and, and doesn't want to move for hours is I can be like, well, I can't go. I've got the cat on my knee. I've got to stay here and read my book. Oh, you cat people. We're the best. Um, Just push <laughs> them up. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? Uh, Elizabeth says that she likes to read at her dining room table with a cup of tea and a slice of toast or some baked good or in her back deck under the shade of some maples. Oh, uh, that's a wonderful image. I wonder if... If she has an Adirondack chair, please let me know if you do, because that's my dream, is to have is. a porch and an Adirondack chair. They're like um, wooden, those wooden chairs that you only really see in America that kind of have a lean, that lean backwards and have really wide armrests. Oh, okay. Yeah, they're amazing. And I really want to, I went to visit a friend who went to Mount Holyoke College in uh, Massachusetts and they had to laser them just on the lawns of the college. And I was just like, this is living. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, 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 that sounds lovely. I think I've never tried reading at my dining room table. I know that I think Claire from the Cat to Reader tends to read at, at a desk or at a table as well. I always just want to be as sort of on as yeah, many cushions be, as possible. Yeah, I wouldn't be comfortable doing that. I mean, my dining table chairs aren't massive, and I'm sitting in it right now. But I mean, they're not massively comfortable enough to sit and read. Like I like to curl up if I'm going to read. Yeah, again, my back. Um, <laughs> so Rebecca is the final one who says that. Oh, it depends on the weather. On a sunny day, I like to read by a lake that's surrounded by hills and trees, and every every time I look up from my book to ponder on a passage, I enjoy watching the antics of the geese and ducks that are splashing around. Where do these people live? I know. every All of our patrons are just li- living idyllic lives. I'm very yeah. happy for them all. On a rainy day, I sit in the window seat. Oh, I really want a window seat. Oh. Um, in my apartment, yeah. and curl up with a blanket, throw pillows, a cuddly dog, a cup of tea, and a book, and listen to the music of the rain while I read. Oh my gosh, Rebecca's practically a poet. Come on, Rebecca. I Where want to come and live with you, Rebecca. Can I come? Where are yeah, you? We're on our way. Please send me an email. And we'll make some <laughs> arrangements. <laughs> yeah, that's the one thing that my... Well, there's many things my flat doesn't have, but the one thing I would want in my ideal flat, for sure, is a really comfortable window seat. Yeah, I've got some dreams for my future life. One of them is having a window seat with cushions that match the curtains. Important. Very important. The second dream is to have a porch. They were like an American style porch. Yeah, with rocking chairs and also one of those sofas that's suspended from the ceiling with chains and that kind of oh, swings. Yeah. Yeah. People are always swinging on when their sons come back from war in, yes. in films. Yes. Uh, slightly like in a horror film. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, English port or British porch is rather easier to attain but not so comfortable to read in. No. Nor... Next to the umbrella rack. Yes, no, exactly. And we don't often have the same amount of sunshine in which to enjoy the porch but we can listen to the music of the rain as rebecca so poetic and certainly very often <laughs> <laughs> um i have been reading in my garden recently which is nice oh, i've cool. got a little ill garden with some very pretty old white chairs white, white metal chairs that my parents 
gave me when, when they yeah. got some different ones. Um, looking and at my apple Samuel blossom, and it's um, it is for the afternoon. Okay, yes, well, that's what you want, really. Isn't exactly. It? Yeah. So the other side of the house gets the sun in the morning, but yeah, afternoon and at the moment, early evening is all sunny and lovely there. Yes. Lovely. Although, because Hargreaves is not allowed out, I just have to sit there as he meows through the front door until I get so you to can't, too you come in the garden? He's, he's abused those privileges. I see. <laughs> yes, a long and horrible tale involving my neighbour's kitchen. But, um, yeah, poor Hargreaves. He's so lovely, but he's, he does not like other cats and he does not deal well with, other, with territorial claims, <laughs> i.e. he believes everywhere it belongs to him. Oh dear. See, that's yeah. the problem with cats, selfish creatures. But this flat does belong to him, so it's fine in here. I, I put up no challenge. Uh, and he has indeed destroyed my armchair. Um, so we've, I don't know if I've come to any sort of conclusion there, because what we actually do and what we prefer to do isn't necessarily the same thing. No, I mean, in an ideal world, I wouldn't have a job and would be able to just lie on a window seat slash sit on my porch and read all day. But, you know, I need a job and I enjoy my job, if anyone from my wife is listening. Um, and I, I, I don't have um, a window seat or porch. So for me personally, I would say probably my favourite place to read is a train. Okay. Um, yes, my favourite place to read is the hypothetical house that I've invented for myself. But, <laughs> but um, even without that existing, I think I probably still prefer reading at home because then I can put music on Spotify that I want to listen to. Other streaming services are available. I have a cat on my knee. That's a big plus. Um, and yeah, I've always got that musical rain. Oh, such a lovely image. Oh, lovely. Right, well... So far, not in agreement. Let's see how we do in the second half, where we're going to look at The Hours by Michael Cunningham and Mrs. Wolf and the Servants by Alison Light. Uh, which one would you like to introduce us to? Well, I'll, I'll do The Hours if you don't mind, seeing as I'm not currently fully refreshed on my origins. Sure, of um, course, yeah. Do you want me to go first? Uh, sure, yeah. Okay, so The Hours um, is a novel that uses Mrs. Dalloway's inspiration in the novel Mrs. Dalloway and it tells the story of three different characters so it starts with Clarissa who is he is not Clarissa Dalloway but is a um, a contemporary for the novel I think it was written in the 90s wasn't it um either late 90s or early 2000s yeah oh yes 1999 1999 thank you so it's set in in New she lives in New York and she is in the process of throwing a party for her her best friend and, and former love, um, whose name I now can't remember. Uh, Richard. Is it Richard? Yeah, I thought it was Richard, or I wasn't confident enough to say. <laughs> um, who is sadly dying from AIDS, and he is a writer, and he's won a prestigious prize, and she wants to have a party for him. So yeah. that's her day. And then, um, so you kind of shift in and out of, of these three different perspectives. So the other perspective is that of Virginia Woolf um, and her life as she is writing um, or preparing to write Mrs. Dalloway. Um, so her life with Leonard in Richmond and her wanting to get away from Richmond. Um, and then you also have the story of Laura, who is living in 1950s America um, and a day in her life. It's her husband's birthday. Um, she's in her 20s and she's pregnant and she's got another baby, uh, a toddler, and her feelings of kind of entrapment with her life. 
Um, so you kind of dip in and out of these three women's perspectives as you go through the novel. Yeah, and the connection she, she had there with Laura is that she, all she wants to do is just sit down and read Mrs. Dalloway. Oh, she yes, was, of course. Sorry, yes. Yes. Great, thank you. Um, so, yes, Mrs. Wolf and the Servants is non-fiction. It's um, broadly about Virginia Woolf's relationship with her servants. In, um, in fact, a bit like The Hours, it does have three strands to it, uh, more melded together. One is particularly about Virginia Woolf and how she thought of or treated her servants. One is those servants' lives. She's done a lot of research into, you know, where they grew up, what happened, what they did after Virginia Woolf died, etc., etc. And then there's another strand about the state or the um, status and lives of the average sort of servant in various different periods of Virginia Woolf's life, from her childhood um, in the 1880s through to her death in, the, in 1941. Um, yeah, so there's a lot uh, of commentary on her from her letters and diary from Wolf's letters and diaries and then a lot of just clearly she's done a very impressive amount of research into these people's lives there's not a huge amount directly from the servants perspectives because that those sources don't exist but uh yeah it's a it's an interesting new take on wolf that is um i don't know if it's a marxist criticism but it's it's leaning that way it's sort of reassessing her status through class it does it does look a bit at the novels but not not that much. It's mostly just about the life. Yeah. And you read it quite a while ago, didn't you? I did. So um, I read it when I was at university. And I think, in fact, I bought this when I was at university. I've got a hardcover. So I think I bought it when it first came out. Um, and I remember finding it quite shocking because mm. I had idolised Virginia Woolf for a long time. I absolutely loved everything I read by her. And um, I suppose in my head I, I'd kind of considered her to be very liberal, very enlightened, very mm. um, left-leaning in, in her thinking. And I think, I mean, as I get older, I, I think perhaps I'm less idealistic about people in the sense of, of not seeing them so much in, in black and white. And I think something quite interesting, I was just rereading a little bit of Mrs. Wolfen's Sense um, just before we started doing this, and she um, makes a very interesting comparison between Virginia Woolf and Nellie, who was her, her servant for the longest period of time, how they were both motherless and um, both of them mm. lost, lost their mothers when they were young. And both of them were difficult women. Both of them had um, not necessarily mental health problems on that behalf of Nellie, but certainly a, a real issue with needing to uh, kind of be, I suppose, had emotional needs, like were quite needy. Um, mm. people and needed a lot of um, kind of had nerves and had anxiety and needed a lot of reassurance and could be considered to be kind of demanding and things like that and it's interesting that um, when you think about it because actually they were very well certainly from Alison Knight's perspective they were very mm. similar people but Virginia Woolf's treatment of, of Nellie and, and other servants as well this kind of sense that she didn't. She kind of, in some ways, saw her as an equal, as a, as a person. But in other ways, it was just like, well, I'm paying you, and I'm, you're here to do what I ask you to do. And there's no real thought into what she might want or need. Though at the same time, she did allow her to have her friend once they moved back to London, have the girl that she'd worked Lottie, who'd worked with her um, at mm. um, in Richmond. To she, I think um, her brother 
employed her and allowed her to come and go with and see Nelly on a daily basis. But I think for me, what I found quite, I mean, this is very rambly, sorry, this is, uh, I found <laughs> quite shocking is her, the way that she spoke about and the way that she dismissed the needs and the desires and the wishes of, of her servants mainly because they were lower class and, you know, they weren't expected to have the same level of emotional um, or physical or intellectual need as, as her. And and actually looking at it now from, a, I mean, at the time I was very shocked and it has always kind of coloured my perception of Virginia Woolf, the person. Virginia Woolf, the writer, I have no qualms about being a genius and I love. Um, but the more I think about it, the more I think, well, Virginia Woolf was a woman of her time. You know, that's she was upper middle class. She had grown up with seeing people interact with servants in that way her whole life. So why should she have been any different? And I think it's unfair of me to expect her to to have behaved or thought differently than she did, because why would she have done? Yeah, and potentially unfair of Alison Light, who is is um, not stridently critical of, of Wolf. No, but she, I think the, she is, isn't she? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly the theme of the book, is that Wolf should, was in the wrong, which from certainly from our perspective she was. Um, yeah, I, I find um, one of the more in, most interesting things, you sort of alluded to it there, is how often servants were passed around between family members or friends. So this often, I can't remember which servants it was, but some of them went to work uh, for Roger Fry, some of them had previously been elsewhere in the, in the Bloomsbury group, and this was never of their choosing. They, of course, it's uh, either when they were fired, they found work nearby, or you know, by some arrangement, they were they were passed between them. Which, when some of them have been, I mean, Nelly was there for was it more than thirty years, or it was yeah. a long time, um, and I, just, I think I Light writes well about the sort of myth of the family retainer uh, who is like, you know, part of the family loves being here. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who are very loved by their family, but they're not part of the family. They are employed and that can end. And that's something that, that I think the most interesting part to me was all the Virginia Woolf's relationship with Nellie uh, through her diary entries where she's constantly worried about the Nellie problem. Mm. Um, and of course, we see a lot about the servant problem discussed in, in, in novels and nonfiction of the period. But yes, yeah, she she has this sort of tempestuous relationship with her that if it was anyone else in life and she had tempestuous relationships with quite a lot of people, um, it would be worked out a lot differently from this very power-ridden relationship. Yeah, and I, I think what's really interesting as well is is to think about certainly that idea of the servant problem. And if you ever, ever read, I mean, the Diary of the Provincial Lady is yeah, very good yeah. on, on this. That actually, by the time you get to the 19th, the Edwardian period and, and sort of the 20s and 30s, actually the power shift starts to be on the side of the servants because there are so few of them. And if a woman doesn't want to have to do her own cooking and cleaning, etc., then she is kind of in submission to these women who can say, well, you know what, I don't like the way you're doing this and I quit. And it's not like the Victorian period when they can go go down to the recruitment office and get another cook tomorrow. Mm. Um, that's not the situation. And a lot of these women like Virginia Woolf, for example, couldn't do the work themselves, either because they wouldn't ever dream of doing it or because physically they, they literally didn't know what to do. Um, mm. Mm. So they were helpless. 
these sort of helpless, childlike women who had no domestic skills whatsoever and were really um, completely reliant on these on these women who I think and I think a part of the relationship between um, certainly what comes across in, in the book is between Nellie and, and Virginia is Nellie kind of knows that she has that power. She can threaten and say, well, I'm going to leave all she likes. Um, she knows that she's not really going to leave. And Virginia Woolf also kind of knows, well, I can't really get rid of her because I need her. And who else am I going to get? Yeah, I do agree. Agree that certainly seems to be particularly after the First World War that's, that's the case, as you say. But I also think that um, in the Diary of Rachel Lady and in Virginia Woolf's Diary and elsewhere, it's I don't know this sort of strange sort of fantasy that they are now the victims because servants might have some choice in what they do. Mm. It, yeah, it's it's a weird mix of yes, it was getting harder to particularly have live-in servants, but also the power hasn't shifted really it's i mean it, there's there's a bit more bit less power than there was before but it, the, the dynamics are sort of aggrandized in in their narratives of their own helplessness which is it, mm. yeah is not quite what what they're dramatizing is not quite what is actually happening hmm. yeah nelly of course makes an appearance in the hours yes um, she does yes she is sent to london to buy uh, was it gin- candy ginger and china tea? Um, what did you think of Virginia Woolf and the servants in the hours? Was it? Do you think it rang true compared to what Light had written? I think it's a very sympathetic portrayal in the hours. Hmm. Um, and I think what's interesting is is that uh, Michael Cunningham talks a lot about how Virginia Woolf is very aware that she's not very good with the servants. She's not very good with Nellie. She doesn't know how to manage her. And she is often uh, talking about, well, Vanessa, her sister, can, knows just knows instinctively how to do this so much better than she does. And she would manage the situation much better. And um, like Virginia Woolf in the book doesn't have the ability to um, to get the power right. So she kind of tells Nellie what to do, but she's she doesn't have the authority to say mm. it. So both of them are just in a mood and sulky with each other um, <laughs> yeah. because she doesn't have the right tone of voice with her. And, and also she's kind of allowed Nellie to have her own way and to be sulky about it and to behave a bit like, well, you know, for goodness sake, how can I be expected to do that sort of thing? Um, and Virginia sort of replies, well, I implore you so. And then they're both like, oh, you know, you horrible woman kind of thing. And it's, it's like petty. They're kind of a bit like sisters, really. They're, mm. and both of them threaten each other and, you know, well, if you don't like it, you know where you can go sort of thing. But both of them feel well know that it's a completely empty threat. So there's a sense as well that Virginia Woolf in the novel enjoys making Nellie's life miserable and there's that bit say the the china tea um and the and the ginger and Nellie's and Nellie's like well you know I've I've got to do this this afternoon I've got to do that and Virginia knows that actually Nellie's going to have a couple of hours off in the afternoon she's like actually do you know what I'm paying you and I rather than sit here she says that there's a great section where she's like well there's a train at one (laughs) o'clock and you can get the train back at three o'clock so you've got plenty of time and Nellie's like, well, that's my whole afternoon. And Virginia's like, yeah, more of it kind of thing. <laughs> this kind of brilliant standoff. Um, and Nellie doesn't have a choice. She has to do what Virginia asks her to do. But I think what's really interesting in that power dynamic in the in the novel is that Nellie feels like she's entitled to show that she's not happy about it. 
Yeah, yeah. She can true. make a scene. She can make a fuss. She'll do it anyway. But she feels on her sort of on her terms, on her terms really. exactly. Yeah, and yeah, she, and she can kind of make a song and dance about it, and make a fuss and and make Virginia Woolf's life a bit difficult about it, and make her feel bad. Um, and there's yeah, so there there isn't a kind of sub- sense of submittal or submissive sub, sub what word am I looking for? Sub- Submission. Submission, thank you. It's been a long day. Um <laughs> there isn't that sense of yeah, of of meek submission that you might find in a in a perhaps an earlier servant uh, of the I mean of, of the Victorian period or something like that when, you know, servants were much more ten a penny. Yeah. Um and when did you first read The Hours? So again, I read it at university. Um, mm. And when I first read it at university, I remember just having this really kind of profound moment where I just thought, wow, this is this is something, this book. Like this, it spoke to me on a very deep level. And because it had such a powerful emotional effect on me, I was frightened to reread it. And I hadn't, I mean, it's been over 10 years since I mm-hmm. reread it. So obviously... Rereading it for this, I had some level of trepidation, thinking, well, what if it's not the book that I thought it was, or the, what if I don't have the same response I had last time? And funnily enough, I, I read the whole thing on a train journey to uh, <laughs> Exeter and over the holidays, and um, oh, it was just just as wonderful the second time around, and yeah. I just found it so moving and the, the, the kind of the twist at the end, which I'd completely forgotten about. And <laughs> I was just like, Oh my goodness, you know, wow, that's, which we won't spoil now, of which course, we won't yes, spoil. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, I mean, it's so clever and it's so thoughtful. And also something that, I mean, I, I was actually talking about this with my, um, year 11s at school today about, mm. um, how well he can write women. And yeah, we yeah. were we were talking about um, the current debates that there are in the literary world, and mostly coming from America, really. I think about this whole thing of you can't write about something unless you've directly experienced it. You know, you can't write about being a woman unless you are a woman, and you can't write about being a man unless you're a man, and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, and I think this is a classic example of how that viewpoint is just ridiculous because. You know, the power of the imagination transcends all of that. And, you know, just because I'm a woman doesn't mean that me writing about being a woman is going to be everybody's experience of being a woman. It's an absurd argument. Um, And I just find his ability to to create those three very separate, very different lives and those three very different realities at different time periods, with different stresses, with different motivations, with different life situations – and all the internal monologue that those characters mm-hmm. have, it's just so powerfully convincing and so individual and so touching and moving and profound, I think, in a way that um, I just I just find incredible that somebody was able, and the, the whole concept and the connections between the characters yeah, and how yeah. they connect through Virginia Woolf's work um, and thinking as well about what Virginia Woolf wanted people to feel and respond to Mrs. Dalloway. And you kind of see that response in Laura, who's reading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just, I just think it's wonderful. Yeah, well said. So, yes, um, I 
saw the film when it was released mm. in 2002, I think, and it's still my favourite film. I think it's brilliant. But at that point, I only had a fairly dim idea of who Virginia Woolf was. I was 16 or something. Um, and a lady in, in the village called Karen lent me Mrs. Dalloway and the book of The Hours. So I, I read Mrs. Dalloway and then I read The Hours. And I have read it since, about seven years ago, maybe. Um, and I read it again this weekend and I hadn't really, I didn't think I was going to have time, but after you sent me a message about how much you were enjoying it, I thought I've got to, got to give it, pick it up again. And in fact, I read most of it ah. while sitting in the garden, weeding <laughs> with one hand without looking at the, there was a lot of weeds in my gravel part of the garden. So I thought I just need to reach out. If it's gravel, it stays. If it's weeds, I pull it up. I don't need to look. <laughs> I can read, <laughs> which was a great way to do it. Uh, and I raced through it in a few hours, basically. Um, and as you say, just as wonderful this time. It's s- such a beautiful book. And those, he, yeah, the, the psychology of those three characters is done so well. So Laura Brown in the, in the middle, se- the middle period, who is struggling with whether or not she loves her husband and her child. And it's all so subtle. I think all of the sections are subtle, but particularly that one. She never just comes out and says, I don't think I love my child. It's just, or my, or my husband is just struggling to make a birthday cake for the most part. And the birthday cake needs to be perfect. Mm. And through that device, we just see her psych, psycho, um, psychiatry, psychology, uh, so well. And something I hadn't really appreciated on previous readings, and I think because I've read a lot more Virginia Woolf now, is how good his writing style is at being like, but not an imitation of Virginia Woolf. And that's what really mm. impressed me because there's, it's certainly, closer to Virginia Woolf than his other novels are. We can talk a bit about other novels later, maybe. But um, it's definitely influenced by Virginia Woolf, particularly in the, the Clarissa Vaughan section. Um, but it never becomes an imitation. It is more just what would happen if Virginia Woolf were, I don't know, writing in 1999 or something. Um, and, if it, yeah, I think it must be really hard to do the Clarissa Vaughan section because her life is like Chris Dalloway's in many ways. She's, as you say, she's, she's making that party. She says she's going to get the flowers herself. Mm-hmm. There's lots of moments in there that are echoes of things from Mrs. Dalloway, but um, he, the way he's judged what to include and what not to include, um, and, and how to update it and how, and what to carry across is, yeah, just exceptional, really extraordinary work. Yeah. Whilst at the same time being a page turner, it's not sort of high fluting literary fiction. I mean, it is literary fiction, but it's not, um, anything other than a joy to read no and and i think actually he's a shining example of uh less is more in mm-hmm. fiction i mean i was ranting on my blog um my most recent post on there about <laughs> the terrible writing of the book i was sent to review um the amount of unnecessary similes and this is <laughs> is the kind of writing that seems to be being taught on um sort of ma courses these days and Michael creative Cun- writing. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Michael Cunningham's writing is a classic example of, of how actually real writing talent can't be taught. You've either got a voice or you haven't. And he expresses himself without any need to use unnecessary descriptors or figurative language. It's it's just he's able to choose the right words to get across the, the the moment and the sound and the image and the space that he wants to explore. Um, and he uses dialogue very well as well. So I'm just in awe of him, really, though I haven't actually read any of his other books. 
I was going to ask. So yeah, yeah, I had quite a break between the first and second one I read, but I've read um, A Home at the End of the World uh, by Nightfall, and I read a non-fiction one called uh, Land's End about living in Provincetown. Um, oh, I love Provincetown. Ah, well, you should read Land's End. <laughs> um, mm. Yeah, I really like I really like all of them, but they are the style. The style of the the other two novels I read are relatively similar to each other and quite different from the hours in some ways. I mean, you can see it's the same author just about, but it's definitely he's chosen a different sort of style for, for the hours. Um, but yeah, definitely worth reading more by him. I think this is easily his most successful book, but he's he's a really interesting, uh, yeah, interesting writer with really nuanced characters. Um, and have yeah. you read anything else about Alison Light? I haven't. No, she's written. Something that I keep meaning to read, and I can't remember what it is. Something recently, I think. Oh, really? So I read Forever England by her, which is uh, it was very useful in my in my um, DFL as looking at basically middle brown novels of the mid century. Um, but yeah, I don't know how she's written more recently. I think it was Common People. That's what I meant to read. Um, oh, okay. So it's basically about her family. And it's also a reflection on on why we need why people today feel the need to research family history and our connections to the past and all that kind of stuff. Oh, that does sound really interesting. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. So, do you think the portrait of Virginia Woolf as a portrait of Virginia Woolf is, is successful in the hours? Knowing, I assume, quite a fair amount about Virginia Woolf. I think so. Um, I think that. It's a very sympathetic portrayal of Virginia Woolf, yeah. and I think it's a very interesting one to think about. Um, I think a great disservice that is done to Virginia Woolf is that too much emphasis is put on the fact that she killed herself. Yeah. And actually, she killed herself when she was in her 60s, and she'd had a very productive adult life, a very happy, largely, adult life, a very happy marriage, um, a very successful career. And very deep and meaningful and long-lasting friendships and relationships with the people. And um, I think what he gets across really well in this book is how depression and anxiety for her were fleeting states um, yeah. that were something that she could be immersed in for months but then re-emerge from and she was able to participate in and enjoy life. Um, and... Something that I think is incredibly moving is he prints her suicide notes, and which is, you know, every time I used to cry reading it, and you can just read that kind of dark moment of desperation in it of her thinking, "I can't, I can't see how I'm ever going to feel differently to this right now," Um, and I think for a lot of people they read that and they think that's how she felt all the time. And it wasn't, obviously. And I think it's it's lovely that Michael Cunningham shows that, that she was a real person. He wasn't just somebody who killed herself. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's maybe... Um, I, would, I wish she'd gone slightly further in that because what she isn't in this book is funny. And in real life, she was really funny. So you know, her yeah. nonfiction is really funny. Her diaries and letters are really funny. Um, Indispensable with all sorts of other things, of course. But in this, yeah, she's a bit too serious for, for my liking in the book. But other than that... Um, and a very strange moment where she kisses her sister. Don't know why that's there, <laughs> but <laughs> don't think there's any indication of any of that. But um, yeah, I thought, and probably better than the film because I love the film, but it's a she's yeah a slightly different person 
in the film. And the film's a lot less subtle in terms of, you know, her wish to, to get back to London. In, in the book, she sort of thinks it, and in the film, she shouts it on a railway platform. So, yeah, yeah. things like that. Which, you know, it's more filmmakers, obviously. Yeah, I, I think I probably find Mrs. Brown the most interesting of the three main women, but they are all um, so engrossing and, and so well-realised. Yeah. Um, and it may be clear that I'm going to choose the hours over Mrs. Wolf and the Servants. Whereas I really enjoyed reading Mrs. Wolf and the Servants. I thought that I, I, I found the stuff with Wolf and the Servants really interesting. I found the generic here's what it was like to be a servant in 1900 or whatever, a little less interesting and a little bit of a more of a sort of slog to get through to get to the bits that were more personal. Yeah, I think, mm. um, I would like to reread it actually, because I think there's probably a lot in there, but um, I think for me that Hours is such a special um, and unique novel. Um, and it's one that I feel that I would go back to time and time and time again. Mm. Um, whereas I think that, Alison Light because it's wonderful it's a wonderful piece of, of research and I think it adds a lot to um, a reader's perception of Virginia Woolf but I think yeah it's not something that you're going to curl up with and get lost in no no <laughs> <laughs> there you go um, great what are we which books are we looking at in the next episode Rachel oh so I've just just, just discovered um, um, Marjorie what's her last name Sharp Sharp, I get Spark. I keep getting confused with Muriel Spark. Marjorie <laughs> Sharp. They're very similar names. They um, are, yeah. And I bought a copy of Creamy Brown while I was on, uh, went to Winchester for the day and um, read it in one gulp and thought it was the funniest, most wonderful thing ever. So um, Simon has been a fan for a while. Um, mm. So we are going to compare Creamy Brown with The Gypsy in the Parlour, which is a novel that Simon read a few months ago, wasn't it? And you really enjoyed it. So Yeah, one of the best books I read last year. Oh. Yeah, and I get a month off because I've read them both already. Like, I know, right? <laughs> uh, that'll be really fun. Looking forward to it. And yeah, Thank thanks you. for listening, everyone. Thanks very much. Bye. 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 You can find a full list of the books and authors mentioned today at stuckinabook.com. You can find Rachel at booksnob.wordpress.com. You can support the podcast at patreon.com forward slash T or books, where there are different levels of rewards. Um, for different pledges. Thanks to everyone who does. Many thanks particularly to Liana, Gracie, Randy, Mark, and Elizabeth. And uh, look out there for future advanced previews of discussion topics that you can contribute to, as our wonderful patrons did today. Speak to you next time. Bye. (laughs) 